Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Back by popular demand, I have Jason Baxter with me again today, and I can't believe we're doing our third annual review. We did one in 2018 and 2019, and so today's episode will be 2020 Fort Capital Year in Review, um, kind of what we did this year, how we navigated a rather interesting year, and kind of how that will tee us up for 2021. So Jason, thank you again for joining me. Thanks for having me, Chris. Let's just go straight into it. Um, This year will always be remembered as the COVID year. And I think it would be smart to start with what are the things that we did as a company as it related uh, to COVID? And then also, what are some things that we did in 2019, obviously not knowing that a pandemic was coming that maybe teed us up for some of that success? Yeah, it's funny. Knowing that we're going to be doing this uh, again, I was listening to our last year just to kind of get a perspective of where our minds were, what we were focused on, and really reflecting over 2020 in general and thinking, you know, all the challenges we faced and all the success that we had and, you know, in, in working through it all, trying to really reflect back and think, where were we going into that? And and what had we just gone through and what was our mindset? Because it's easy to forget, you know, what was happening before that. And, and listening to that, it was really not shocking, but it was, I was very happy to hear some of the things that we were on our mind. And it, it I don't know if it's, uh, we talk about this a lot, if it's luck or hard work or the combination of all of it, but it's like the stars were aligning. Yep. And uh, we had done a couple of things. If, if people listened to that last year's review, uh, one of those being core, which is a foundation of our company, which is cost control, overhead management and revenue generation. And you know, those things were became extremely critical as we got into uh, the end of Q1 because of COVID. But there was another thing that we did last year at our retreat, um, which was we really set the stake in the ground that we were going to bring property management in-house. And when we did that, we didn't realize, we knew it was important and it was the right time. And we talked about that last year during this same uh, interview. And when we got to COVID and that happened, we were able to then make a decision because of those actions we had taken to accelerate that. And if you look through what core is and that that revenue generation part, when when you something like COVID happens, your opportunities to generate revenue dry up immediately. I mean, immediately. And so the fact that we had already put those balls in motion and that we were able to then execute on it because of the the company that we had built and the actions that we had taken, it, it it really was the difference maker for us for 2020 in terms of how uh, impactful the year was for us in the positive, not not all the, the stuff that the rest of the world knows happened. For sure. And so um, I'm extremely grateful that we did those things and, and it was super impactful. So property management is the thing that stands out to me the most, but that really doesn't happen if we hadn't already put that foundational bedrock of core in yep. place. And I, and I remember you coming to me this was even early in 2019. Core didn't was not a year-end decision. That was almost like an end of 2018. Let's oh, yeah. re- release in 2019. We talked about it heavily on this. But podcast. I remember you coming up to me being like, dude, things are really good right now. They feel really good. This is typically when costs start getting out of control. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, everything feels like it's just going to happen how it should. And the discipline and the conviction that you had of there are things we need to start doing now because winter, whatever that meant, will come. And so I'll never forget that conversation, which, like you just said, led into that. Where are we missing revenue that's like sitting right in front of us? Because we were a lumpy company. When you when you don't have a lot of fixed revenue, you got to do deals. You got to sell deals. You got to. And we just said we need to get to a spot where if we did no new deals, didn't sell a deal, didn't refine, just did nothing but operate what we have, all our people are covered. They can live a great life, and everything else is gravy. And and that's that's what we were um, thinking, not knowing that uh, March fifteenth would come. Exactly. And then the last thing. In that, that I remember from last year, this really stems off our retreat, but we talked about it heavily in, in the year in review, which is we really dug into what the flywheel was at Fort Capital. And we talked about what the flywheel was last year. And if anybody doesn't remember, that's a Jim Collins uh, book and and philosophy on, on how great companies operate and they find their flywheel and it generates and gets faster and faster. But we really honed in on that at our retreat last year. And at the top of that flywheel was buying great real estate, right? Buying more real estate. And in the center of that flywheel was to be the best uh, real estate operator in the world. And and when COVID hit, we didn't know what the world was going to give us, but we knew that we couldn't make a decision to buy a piece of real estate at that moment. And we didn't know how long it was going to be. And we didn't know when the world was going to come back to normal. All we knew is that at the, even though our flywheel said that buying real estate was the number one thing, we couldn't do that in that moment, but it was very easy because we had that flywheel to look at the next spoke in that flywheel and say, but we can still market ourselves really well. We can still brand ourselves well, and then we can operate really well. We can still focus on our talent. We can still, all the other aspects of our flywheel, we could really hyper-focus on. So when I reflect back into 2020, I really, and I think about March 15th, and I think about the conversations we had what I remember for me that impacted the most was just reverting internally and saying, what can we control? What can we focus on? Because we cannot control this world. We cannot focus on these things that are coming at us and we can let them take us down just like everybody else can. Or we can focus on these things that we can control, which were very right in front of us because we had just done the work. And that's what we did. And, and those things that we could control were we could lead by example ourselves. We could focus on being a better operator, our tenants, how we manage this risk that just came upon us with through rent relief and things that we knew that if we do these now, it'll one, it'll solidify our reputation and the respect from our investors and our banks and help us build that reputation. When we come out of this, we'll have more leverage and more ability to move faster through the market. And so I, I think, you know, as challenging it was, I know for you and I to figure out how to understand what the world was going to be, because we were able to focus on those few things and then the world came back for us rather quickly, we were able to capitalize on it very quick. And the only other thing that I would say in terms of reflecting on COVID and being prepared for it is all that hard work we did at the end of 2019 sort of came to fruition through the first quarter for us because we had a lot of deals in our pipeline that we were fortunate enough to close in that first quarter. And so uh, if you add up everything of where we were, when you think of the last year core, the flywheel, the year-end retreat, when we talked about getting into property management, all those things 
were like the stars aligning for us to be prepared to weather a storm like that we went through. And the fact that we weathered it the way we did and where we are today just gives me a lot of confidence that there's not a lot that we're going to be able to, that's going to stop us from accomplishing what we want to accomplish in the future. I love it. Yeah. I remember those early conversations in March and April and the world's moving really fast and you're mm-hmm. trying to make decisions. But again, having that flywheel and those things to look at is like, we don't have to get so nervous that decisions are all over the place. They're right here in these buckets. Yep. Like that's where we need to focus. And I also remember saying, you know, there's things we'll look back on that maybe we regret. There's things that we're going to look back on that we did great. When you're in the moment, you're trying to do things with the best information possible. And when the best, when you don't know where the best information is to look, that's where things get really screwed up. We yeah. knew where to go look for the information we needed in each bucket of our flywheel. Right. Look really deep. And again, as we sit here today, there's things that maybe we could have done a little better on. There's things that we probably did better than we realized at the moment. But to what you said, having that flywheel and building it, having not only the two of us understand it, but the whole team understand it, it made goal setting, it made process setting, it made what we need to focus on just so much easier. Right. Um, so thank you, Jim Collins and right. Flywheel. Yeah, and I think that's the key to this is that we're, we're not, and I think we try to do this when we talk is, we're not just brilliant people over here coming up with all these great ideas. We we feel like, yeah, we have a lot of great ideas, but there's a lot of people that have done this better than us for decades. Long time. Centuries. And and the key is go back in history and just figure out where the basic fundamental foundational things are that, that keep things moving when it comes to company and people and, and all these things. And so I think we've just done a good job of not pretending like we know it all and really going and finding the best the best actions that fit what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And, and it's worked. You could be really successful just copying people. You, yeah. like, you don't have to reinvent the it's world. It's all been done. Right. <laughs> Unless Elon Musk, you can go create the everything. We're not Elon Musk. Yeah. yeah. We're just trying to do uh, simple things a little bit better. Right. Okay. So COVID, uh, you kind of mentioned we started the year, we closed $40 million in those first kind of two months, which which was big. Um, mm-hmm. We can't underestimate that it was great to get the year off to a good start. We had made that decision in September of 2019 that it's time to get into property management. And then just a little bit more, again, you could go listen to 2019's episode, but we did that because we didn't. We knew it was a fixed revenue line item that brought predictable revenue, which smooths out the company. It makes it easier to make decisions on what to do with money. Uh, makes it in easier to hire. It puts less stress on. I think the the worst thing that happens to some kind of real estate businesses or or deal type businesses is you get so pressured into you have to do a deal to keep the lights on that you get forced into maybe doing the wrong deal or your blinders go on. And we really long, long term just said, we want to live in a world where we do the things we want to do. We don't do anything if we don't need to, but there's not this outside pressure to do something that puts blinders on us. So we made that decision. We decided uh, we will spend seven months onboarding the Yardi, hiring a fantastic team, and we'll go ahead and we'll launch April 1st, uh, two weeks into uh, the time we didn't know a global pandemic. So let's just talk a little bit about kind of April 1st and kind of what we did with property management going forward. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we we had the plan for property management, but but like Chris just mentioned, our thought was that we would have the entire year to sort of systematically roll into this and do it in a way that, you know, did not put a lot of strain or pressure on the company. Now, you could look at it fortunate or unfortunate. 
COVID happened in terms of the, our property management business, we were forced to to really say, we need this revenue quicker. It's going to be a game changer for our company this year. And so we uh, accelerated the onboarding of property management from the rest of the year down to about a three to four month period. And that meant that we needed to really identify the plan of action in order to get this, you know, at the time, a little over 3 million square feet of industrial real estate onboarded onto our portfolio. Um, And this is close to 300 or more tenants. Uh And so we selected a accounting software, which we had already done, but we had to accelerate that. So we pulled the team together. We put a game plan together. We started implementing the process. We, We named the roles of who would be responsible for what. Um, and we started to set very aggressive targets, which if, if if the listeners here have ever listened to our previous episodes when we've talked about OKRs, uh, objectives and key results, they came into play here heavily. We started to identify the things that needed to happen in the next 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. And on paper, they looked unachievable. They were the true definition of, of a moonshot goal. They did not appear to be something that was actually going to be feasible including onboarding a very technology-heavy accounting software that we had never used before. Even the team said this is, you know, there was a lot of worry and concern, could this be achieved? But I think because of the pandemic and people realizing that we're all in this together, we have one opportunity here and everybody wants to continue to work at this company. We all do, obviously. Um, I think the people really pulled together and showed what was possible. And so, uh, those goals that appeared to be moonshot, like onboarding Yardy and bringing on our first property in the next 60 days, seemed unachievable, became reality very quickly. And once we did the first one, we realized we could bring on the next nine and the next 13 until we had all of them on. And we actually beat our goal to bring them all onboarded. And so I think the the key there was that we had a system in place, objectives and key results, and then you align that with the team that buys in that this has to get done whether they think they can or not, typically, if you set the goal hard enough and high enough, you'll find out what people are capable of. And, and that's what we did. And not to uh, just get sidetracked on that, but you mentioned Yardi, and I get asked all the time, how did we select Yardi? Did we did we have lots to pick from or did it make the most sense? Yeah. I get asked all the time why we picked Yardi. Do you, do you yeah, remember? I, I do remember, and it's a horrible answer, and, yeah. and I hate to give it. Uh, but the truth is, is in our business, there's there are options for accounting softwares, but like any any business, there's one that dominates, and it's one that most people recommend. But it's like anything that's popular, they recommend it because they use it and they know it, and everybody says it. Yeah. And so we went down the same path, and and it really is the the leader in in our industry in that. Um, there's probably better options in terms of a fit for us, uh, but again, we had to make a decision. We did that. And um, once you commit to something that's that big, um, you sort of go that path. And and that's I think that's the big part. It is a big decision. Like you don't just pick a, a, a property management software and like turn it on tomorrow. How long did it take us to onboard the Yardi? It took sixty days um, to really get to a place where we were able to start using it. Um, and I would say that's very aggressive. I think a lot of that has to do with our goal setting and our. OKRs that we put in place and the team's buy-in, even the Yardy team, I think, was a, was skeptical about us pressing to get things done as quickly as we could. We brought on a, a I don't know if it's a large team comparative to other people onboarding Yardy, but we brought on 
for the size of our company, a fairly large team of people, internal, of course, but brought them together to um, help onboard. So everybody picked up a piece of the onboarding process and everybody went through the training. We committed to it every week. And yeah, it was a heavy lift. Yeah. So I wouldn't recommend people going to a change like that lightly. Right. Let's just go a little deeper on how quickly, kind of pre-COVID, did we think we would onboard all 4 million square feet of properties? And then how quickly did we actually do it? Yeah, so we we originally gave ourselves pretty much the year. So the goal was to have everything onboarded by the fourth quarter. So close to close to a year. And April came and we had everything. Now we bought things post-COVID that ended up coming on as well. But we basically had everything on within a six-month window. Yep. So we we pretty much cut the time in half, which also included bringing on additional assets that we didn't even own at the time. I think one of the other things we did well this year, not getting away from property management, but it's really easy as a small company. Real estate's a really broad word. There's lots of asset types in it. There's new development. There's buying existing buildings. There's Then there's like land, office, hotels. It was really easy in March and April to go like, well, the world's going to fall apart. There's going to be like all this stuff for really cheap. Mm -hmm. Like maybe let's just go try buying lots of things. And to be honest with you, like we had that conversation. We did. And one of the things I'm most proud about this year, and again, it goes back to the flywheel and like just staying focused is like through all that talk and, you know, what should we do? Should we start buying other asset classes too? We really kept going back to the same discussion, which is no, like we have been doing industrial for four or five years. We're really good at it. We mm-hmm. understand it almost to where there's nothing better than when you can do a, a, a model on a napkin and you just know. Right. And I think what we did in 2020 um, is we just became more convicted in, in industrial. And we literally said, no, we're not getting in self-storage. No, we're not going to go bust buy busted up hotels. Like, we're going to double down yeah. on this. And I think that was a moment in time that without the flywheel and without a lot of the earlier pain we've had as a company where we were a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, it was mm-hmm. really easy to start looking for opportunities outside what's just sitting in front of you. Yeah, and I think the the key point there is that as we were having those conversations, we were not seeing these drastic opportunities that might have normally been there in some crash in a market, right? Uh, where there's a bunch of foreclosures or, you know, people buying up debt. It, it wasn't happening the way that we assumed it was going to happen. Now, a lot of that was because it's a different deal. The world had never dealt with this and the money was flowing in from the government, all these different things. But at the same time, what we saw as we started to protect our assets and really double down on making sure that we operated with excellence and that we focused on the tenant and we we came up with rent relief plans and created new technology and reporting to be able to manage these assets differently. When we were doing that, at the same time, we were realizing our assets are not really struggling through this market. Mm-hmm. Our tenant base is not seeing the same impact as the rest of the world. It allowed us to recognize at a different level what this asset class really meant, what value it was providing to the world, to the population, to e-commerce and all these other things. It allowed us to get a different perspective of, we really do have a value here. We knew it, but now we really know it. Yep. And um, it, it's, a, it's a blessing and it allowed us to move really quickly. And, and when we realized that that was not changing for us, we were able to it was probably 60, maybe 90 days total before we were fully back into saying, we're, we got to start finding opportunities. Right. 
and and granted, we I still think that was the right decision. We had to go through that time of the unknown. We would have never pulled the trigger. So I feel very blessed that we were able to do that. And, and doubling down on industrial was definitely the right decision. I couldn't agree more. You know, it's it, when we started in 2015, uh, just even thinking about industrial, uh, it's more obvious today. It was not as obvious back then. And and to what you just said, we didn't know it was like pandemic resistant. We weren't. That's not like a check mark. I think that's something over the next five years, people are going to have to. You know, you'll be hearing more of is like, could this business idea survive a pandemic or not? Hopefully, we don't have to go through one anytime soon going forward. But right. um, yeah, that's the ultimate stress test. Yeah. Let's go back to core a little bit. Okay. We set up lots of um, dashboards. FOS allowed us, and, and we don't have to go deep into what FOS is. I think a lot of listeners still want to know what it is. And, and we are going to, we're coming up with a presentation on how to show it. But we came up with a lot of OKRs around cost control, reducing expenses. We created dashboards and things that allowed us to see in real time how our tenants were doing. We could see at any moment who was asking for rent relief, who wasn't. So let's just talk a little bit about some of the specific things that we did as a business to cut costs and some of the things we set up to like manage data and view data. Sure. Well, the first thing we did to cut cost is, is again, we've talked about some of this in the past is our annual operating plan. We we have a budget going into the year and and we scrub that budget every year. But when COVID happened, when you've already got a system in place of how you do that, which is the, the cost control portion, we immediately went back to that budget. And I met with each team member and we went back through of the things that we had at the beginning of the year after we had already scrubbed it from the previous year and said, what's a nice to have and what is an absolute must have. And we cut our budget to the bare bone. Within a day, we knew that we had cut another $300,000 out of the budget. And that that was just right on the top. So that that alone, it's, it's a, again, it's a blessing and a curse. It takes going through something like this to really question yourself and say, what at the first of the year was I still going, yeah, let's go on, let's have seven of these dinners every quarter. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it doesn't take much when you go through a <laughs> pandemic to say, we don't need to go out to eat and spend $500 a month yeah. to do this. Um, it's little things like that. And then you add it up on across a company uh, that has 20 plus people, you you find money very quickly. So that that was step one is we just used our core, used our budget, and we, we scraped it down to the bare bones. I'm sure a lot of people did that in the industry. But if you have a process and a mindset and a team that's set up to do it, it doesn't take a long time. So we got through that very quickly. Then we started focusing on what can we control from the asset level. Again, there's a lot of cost out there that we needed to control because at the time we didn't understand what was going to happen to these assets. We were worried that people weren't going to be able to pay rent. We were worried that our cost was still going to keep coming because we still have to pay the mortgage on the the loan and we have to pay insurance and taxes. We weren't sure what was going to happen. So we took some immediate steps where we created a loan tracker, where we we basically outlined every single loan, the covenants, all the terms around that loan, where it stood, what the interest rate, if it was interest only, when it converted, all those things. And we just tracked it every single week. We immediately started having conversations with every lender, every loan officer to make sure that they understood that our intent is to operate these assets with excellence. We're going to do everything we can in our power to deliver. And there's nothing that we're going to do to affect the performance of this asset. We can't control COVID, but we can control everything we can do. And we let them know that we're in it. We started working on the tenant side where we created a rent relief request uh, tracker where every single rent relief uh, that went out 
which means we created a process where if somebody was asking for rent relief, they had to fill out a form. We had a questionnaire. We needed to know why they needed it, um, which was surprising. Just by creating the questionnaire, we learned really quickly that if someone wasn't even willing to fill out the questionnaire, they couldn't even get the rent relief first off, right? So that was a requirement. And you found out real quickly that most people, in at least in our asset class, weren't even willing to take the time to fill out the rent relief request, and they just gave up. Yeah. And then they paid rent next month. It was like a popular thing. It was to a do popular at the time. thing Ask to your do. Landlord. Right. And then and that's something that we learned really quickly that first month when we were trying to do the right thing by the tenant. We realized that the world was being told, don't pay your rent. Right. And and we had a lot of conversations around the the landlord cannot become the bank. Yeah. The, the landlord has a mortgage. The bank will come take our property. We are not the bank. Um, and so uh, thankfully, uh the government at the time, PPP and EIDL loans came out and a lot of our tenant base uh, received those loans. So the few rent reliefs that we ended up giving that they followed our process and we tracked them, most of those received either a PPP loan or an EIDL loan. And we uh, got caught back up on those within 30 to 60 days. And so we were very fortunate. But the key there is that we performed exactly what we needed to do to protect the asset. And what that showed is investor confidence and lender confidence. And so that if if whatever we go through in the future, we know now we have investors that believe in us and we have um, uh, lenders that believe in us because we did the right thing. Yep. I remember some of my first calls out into March, early May or early April were to banker friends of mine going, look, it's been a good 12-year run. I've never really <laughs> had to worry about busting a covenant or not making a loan payment or like what happens? I mean, we did episode 59 with James Hill is like the borrower-lender relationship 101. And the first thing that really stood out was, you know, banks are people. They're, they're not some like machine robot that unless you're a CMBS borrower, which that's different. Um, but if you're borrowing from a local bank or something with more humanistic approach, the, the, the first bit of advice was be communicate quickly, be as transparent as you can, just be a good partner. Uh, and not just with banking. And, and we said this to the team, how you work through a crisis, people will remember for 20 years. And I remember we told our team, people are losing jobs, people are stressed. We don't want to be the people that are adding to that. So how you treat people now will be remembered way after this is gone. And so if you're one of our bankers listening to this, um, I give, uh, I have a ton of res- respect for y'all. One of the things that we were able to do is one, get in touch with every bank immediately, tell them we haven't been in a closet. We get what's going on. We're going to do everything we can. We also work to um, to be a, a good partner to these banks through that. And, and again, when the world was darker, we modified almost every loan in our portfolio, either decreasing interest rates. We were we we said that we would hold back three months of reserves. We did not distribute for three months. We mm-hmm. kept holding cash. We said, we will do whatever you can, but we need to lessen the risk on here. And we would rather keep a, our loan with you as the bank rather than go to a new bank and refinance that loan. And we had a lot of success. I think we saved over almost a million dollars of interest a year across our portfolio yep. just by asking for a simple loan modification, which... I don't know, had we done that kind of later in the year, if that would have worked. It worked in that March to June window. Yep. Um, and, and the truth is, is, I'm glad you brought that point up because it's it's good for the bank as well because mm-hmm. interest rates continue to drop, right? Yep. Or they continue to drop through that through that time. And 
And we could have went to another bank and refinanced it, especially at this point. Yeah. Probably gotten even a better rate than those rates that we locked in. Now, not a lot, but the, the key there is that we're working together with our our banking partners and we want to maintain that relationship and we're trying to find a win-win. Yep. And that's what we did. And if a bank has a good loan on their balance sheet, knowing that they have other problems that are coming, they want to keep that loan on the balance sheet. If right. they have to reduce the loan 25 or 50 basis points, but keep a good loan, the worst thing you can do is have a good loan, leave and go to another bank. And now all you're left with is your problem loans. And so we learned a lot. Again, if you're one of our bankers and you're listening to this, um, thank you so much for everything you did with us this year. Yeah, we appreciate you. How our team executed with banks and how we learned more about what things are like on their side. Again, anybody that's just gotten into real estate, well, even if you've been in it for 10 years, you've lived in an up market. I would highly encourage anybody to go learn more about what's happening on the other side of the table. Right. Because we borrow millions of dollars and never, I probably admittedly never spend enough time wondering like, well, what happens uh, on the other side? So yep. what are other things that we did outside of core and outside of uh, launching a property management business? Did we do to improve our team, improve our people and improve our team? So yeah, when, when the when COVID initially hit and, and going back to what I said earlier about we had to focus on what we control we really got with each team and, and we knew there was going to be a time period, not knowing how long it was, where we weren't going to be able to really move at the same pace we were before, whether that means, you know, buying new assets or refinancing or whatever we were doing. There were things that we did have to focus on that we just talked about with our banks and lenders and our tenants, but we also needed to use that time to improve. So so one thing I, I learned heavily from where I came from in the past was that the that company that, that I kind of grew up in on the more corporate side had really became the company they became through the worst times in history. Um, through downturns is when they became that company. They used that as an opportunity to really propel themselves forward. And I I knew that at this time, is that's really all we could do. And so as a team, we pulled together and each department did their part. And, and I, I brought some bullet points with me today because I know these things stood out to me. But this was mid-year when we discussed all the things that we did through COVID at our mid-year retreat and and some of the things that we had done were, um, and I'll just, I'll bullet point some of these through each department, but um, these are examples. There's a lot more that happened in accounting, for example, what we talked about earlier, we did a full transition onto the Yardi platform and learned that new software, which is a huge lift. Uh, we transitioned all of our accounting uh, daily transaction recording to a team in India, which not only saved us money, goes back to core, it saved us a tremendous amount of time, weeks of time of work for people in our office that we transitioned to India. In the acquisition team, we we streamlined our entire investment committee. So we knew there was going to be a time where we didn't have as much deal flow. So we use that as an opportunity to streamline the process and try to improve our investment committee uh, online tracking, how we run our meeting. We have a report online where we track, where we actually uh, have our investment committee. We improved all of that. Um, we integrated our model, our underwriting model into our operating model. So we streamlined that process. So there's a clear handoff when we buy a deal and it's handed off to the operating team for the asset managers. That, that stuff is seems like a no-brainer, like you could do that anytime. But the truth is when you're busy and you're doing a lot of deals, you just put that stuff off because it, it is sort of working. You know, your acquisition guy has a model. He hands the deal off. Your asset management team picks it up. They re-underwrite it into their operating model and you just keep moving. We streamlined that whole process. Now it's smooth all the way through. It's one one process. 
the marketing team stepped in heavily on the the property management onboarding and created an entire tenant onboarding process where we notify them and we communicate with the tenants. We have a, we have a, a a huge belief in how we treat the tenants is going to affect how well our properties operate. So we set up an entire process for our marketing team on how we communicate with our tenants. We defined and updated the processes uh, for this podcast, publishing it, operating it. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of time, a lot of great conversations, a lot of thoughts and ideas that have happened this year that come out of this. And so they they were able to put time and energy into that. And we updated our employee onboarding process, how we bring on team members, how we treat them, make sure they get up to speed on time. Um, and although we weren't hiring at that time, what better time to update something like that rather than when you're in the middle of onboarding people, right? Yep. So we took that, took advantage of that. Property management, Some a few things we did is we built uh, live tracking of all active TI projects and CapEx projects, which uh, again, we were onboarding property management, but we had the time and the resources while doing that to say, let's set it up correctly. Let's let's make sure that we we understand where our budgets are and where our dollars are going as we do this. We set up a bidding process. We implemented new processes for building inspections, budget tracking, monthly reports, rent delinquencies, customer surveys to get feedback from them. We implemented a process for the tenants that allow for us to communicate with them 24, what we call the 2-24-7 internal goal, which is we respond to any tenant requests within two hours. They get some sort of response back for us. There's an action plan put in place within 24 hours, and that that request is resolved within seven days, no matter what. And so that just lets them know that we have a goal. If you reach out to us, we have a plan. And so those are the type of things we put in place. And then on the technology side, we just doubled down on everything we were doing on technology, the reporting uh, dashboards that basically roll out across every department and the company level so that we can see all data in real time. Uh, These are things that we had plans to do. All of these things we intended to do at some point. Um, But through COVID, we took the opportunity to double down and focus our energy on what we could do, which was some things like that. And then there was tons of other things. A ton. One that comes to mind that you you missed was um, investor reporting. Oh, We used to spend like 60 days. Basically, investor reporting never stopped. Like as soon as you finished one quarter, you started the next. And we, again, it's one of those things that seems so obvious looking back going, why were we doing that for years and years? And now we have a process that, I mean, you can speak a little bit more, but we're, we took what was taking months and tons of team members and and it's so streamlined now to where imp- reporting is now done in a matter of days. Right. And now it's just technology. It's uh, Our director of technology always says it very well. It's like the, the goal for technology is not to uh, speed up a process. It is to eliminate a process, right? And so the, the real point of technology is you should be able to find things that could be automated or digitized and, and never have to worry about them again. You set them up once and they they work. Yep. And that's what this that is an example of, of the investor reporting. It was just a very manual process where we sent around every investment. And, and remember, for the people listening, we're talking about 30, 40 plus investments at any given time that were updating on a quarterly basis with what happened the last three months, what, how did the performance, what were the numbers, everything about it, including pictures and updates. And that was going around to the marketing team, to the asset managers, to the investment team, back to myself or Chris to edit them and give feedback. And, and in a small business, that is a normal thing that happens every day in this, in this industry of investing in real estate. 
it was very easy for us to recognize that we could set up a, a template that is very similar to every single asset. And throughout the quarter, the asset managers are part of their normally daily process is to enter updates into a software. And that software is pre-populating this template. And by the end of the quarter, all the updates for the quarter were already there. Yep. Then that goes to our investor relations manager, who then looks at it for one last edit review, and then it goes out. And yeah. it's very systematic that it's the same every time so that the investor understands that they're not having to figure out what the update is every time, that it's consistent. Yep. And that's what's important for an investor. It's what's important for me as an investor is that I want to be able to look at that report and understand what I'm seeing every single quarter like clockwork. Yep. And that's what we did. And I think, um, again, just reflecting back on 2020 and decisions made in years past and people listening have probably heard me beat this drum. I, I certainly know our team has for years, but we've talked a lot about the importance of using software and technology to make your business better. And we use the analogy a lot at team meetings when the Blockbuster CEO in 2010 came out and told the world that that Netflix was not a competitor and was nowhere on their radar. And, and a year later, he filed for bankruptcy. When technology happens, it looks slow. And then it by the time you actually notice it as a thing, it's already passed you by. And we have embedded um, a technology-centric focus into our company across all teams. I mean, we are constantly asking, and not to use it as a distraction, like you said, to do things quicker, to just, to, it's fun to say your technology is literally going like, how do we keep eliminating more manual work? Not um, for any other reason than one, we're more efficient, it's better cost prohibitive, but it gives our team members more time to work on the things they're great at. That's right. the biggest thing. If right. they have more time to do what they're good at, I think the only other thing I would reiterate that, again, looking at this year and how quickly we were able to set these things up and pivot and just get this thing going is you can't just walk into your, if you're not already thinking this way, you don't just walk into your company one morning and go, hey, we're going to start doing this kind of stuff. <laughs> one, that takes years to implement. Two, if you have a team that's been comfortable with no technology forever, to think that just because you say we're going to start doing it, everybody's just going to be on board. One, most people might not know how to use it. Two, they might look at it as a threat. I mean, there's a lot of educating on why technology is good. And so this idea that you just walk in your office one day and say we're going to be this company, even if you have all the money in the world and you go buy all the software in the world, we often say it's more important to have a team that's willing to adopt the software and knows how to adopt the software and knows how to make it part of their daily routine than the software itself. 100%. I mean, the same software going into two companies could have two totally different outcomes. And so as I look back on 2020 and the years of things that we've preached that I think, again, to our team now feels more obvious, but maybe in 2018 or 2017, they're like, Chris is a psychopath. Mm -hmm. um, it really kind of showed itself in 2020 when all these things were happening so naturally. It was right. not convincing people that we needed to do this. It was, we need to do it, and we have a process for onboarding. And onboarding technology, getting it to become seamless is extremely difficult to do. It's the culture. I mean, it's it's ingrained in our culture. Yep. And it has to be. If I was an LP and I was uh, interviewing GPs, and I do that as an LP sometimes. I'm a GP most of the time. I'm an LP some of the time. 
ask your GPs how they're u- utilizing technology. If right. they don't have a good answer for that, dig deeper on that topic. Right. Um, because as the world continues to move forward and, and COVID has been the accelerator of many things, not having an answer to that question is not really an option going forward. Right. I mean, it, it will, it'll play itself out where the GPs, and, and I would hope to, that we're going to be one of those uh, groups, is they're going to be the ones that are setting themselves apart and they will continue to do that. It's no different than when you look at a company like uh, an Uber or a Tesla. How do these companies come up and grow so fast? They're using a new platform, which is technology. They're not doing it the old way. Yep. And so we, we've just in, in, you know accepted that that's who we are. We understand that that's what it's going to take to play in the future, and we like it, yep. right? So the key is, is we are not just bought in because we understand that if we don't do it, it's going to leave us behind. We actually appreciate the value that it's going to bring, and it will make our lives better. Yep. And so you, you do have to ingrain that in your culture, and there's a lot of uh, companies out there like ours or, or in the real estate industry that are still way behind, and we look at that as a huge advantage. There's a ton of them that are doing what we're doing, but- uh, the key is, is that it's a smaller group doing what we're doing and it's a much bigger group that's not. And the more that we move faster towards that, it's hard for them to catch up. Right. Going back to where we started the conversation, the top of our flywheel, which is acquire great real estate. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that we've done in acquisitions. Again, something that we started planning for over a year ago that we're now starting to release out into the world, mm-hmm. um, how we're thinking about acquisitions going forward. And then we can talk about our results, how we did in 2020, the amount we bought, amount of deals. Sure. But let's just first start talking about some of the tools we've built and how we're kind of thinking about acquisitions as we march forward into 2021. Yeah, so uh, again, I think being technology focused is the key here, but you know, we started looking at the one of the challenges if at the top of our flywheel is buy more real estate and you're subject to whatever the market gives you, then you're not you're just waiting. You're you're hoping that enough opportunities present themselves or enough brokers send you deals or however the traditional market operates, that's what you're hoping on or hoping for. And we just realized that was not going to work for us. So over about a year ago, we started trying to find a, a way to identify every asset that fits our investment thesis across initially our state, because it's it's where we believe in and we understand very, very well. And so we we came up with a plan of how we're going to aggregate the data across many platforms to find every asset. And when I say every asset, it's thousands and thousands of buildings across each major market that we we are interested in. If we just use Dallas-Fort Worth as an example, there's, call it 2,200 assets that match our criteria in some way. We know exactly what those assets are. We know where they are. We know who owns them. We know when they were built, the last time they were sold, on and on and on. We have 700 data points across every asset that we're interested in. The key there is we wanted to start to aggregate this data so that we had it, so we weren't beholden to wondering what we might want to buy or where it is or just waiting for the needle in the haystack to show up. We know every asset. Now you're just saying, okay, what is the strategy to find out who's willing to sell, when, why, and how much, right? At what point? So now we have to have a contact strategy. How are we going to start communicating with these owners across these assets? And as you're doing that, you're filtering down the ones you really want to buy, right? Because you're learning a little more, you're aggregating data. But the key there is we have the initial assets. And now every point of communication, every data point that's collected along the way, as we reach out, we communicate with these owners, 
that information is being aggregated into that same data set, right? So we now know more and more about these assets. We're not trying to go out and buy all 2,200 buildings tomorrow, but if you know all 2,200 buildings and you keep narrowing down that list to what's a, a real potential and you're in front of those people more often than not, the chances are over the next year, two year, three year, four year, five years, those assets are going to become available and you're going to be ready to buy them because you're going to know more about them than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that thought process seems very big to try to figure out. But if you just start with that first step, which is know all the buildings you want to buy and just keep working towards that process, that's what has allowed us to get where we are today, where now we have a contact strategy of how we're communicating with these buildings in small batches and keep honing in on the buildings that we're most interested in. Along the way, some of those sellers are ready to sell now and we buy those buildings, which allows us to buy 10, 12, 15 buildings a year, properties, assets. But as we go, we're contacting hundreds. And those hundreds that aren't ready to sell right now are going into a follow-up. We're building relationships with them. They're getting to understand who we are. They're looking at us. We're looking at them. And that communication is going to continue next year, the year after that, the year after that. So that's how we think about it. We're not waiting. We're going out and we're planning for the future of how we're going to stay in communication with every asset that we want to buy. Talk about the predictability score. So within that, this is the great thing about technology. We're not blindly doing that. We are using algorithms and machine learning that is looking back over history. So we take the last five years and we, we give the, the uh, algorithm and the machine learning, we give it the criteria of what the investments that we're looking for are. So we have all the buildings that match the criteria, and we can just use an example like class B and fill light industrial multi-tenant, right? Between this year and this year, this size and this size, this price and this price. Um, we, we give it the, all these key data points. And then we say, let's look back over the last five years. And let's say, if we take those same key data points, what buildings sold in those last five years that match our criteria? And when we run that across that last five years, we can predict within one in every two buildings, which ones sold. So what we do is we take the buildings we're looking at today, and we narrow down that search to the buildings that match our criteria. And then we run that through 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, and we compare it to what sold. The machine learning then gets smarter and smarter and smarter because it can see what was sold in 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018. Then we apply that to 2019, right? And what we find is that we can predict within roughly one, it's, let's say we narrow it down to the top 200 properties that we like. We can with confidence say that one in every two buildings is likely to sell in the next 12 to 24 months. Now, nobody knows for sure. There's, there's a seller on the other end. But if you take the criteria of what happened over the last five years because of the age, how long it's been owned, it, all those criteria, you can predict that you're, you're increasing your odds on looking at buildings that are more likely to sell than not. Yep. And that's all we're trying to do. We're trying to increase our odds. And then in addition to that, we take that list once we've identified what's more likely to sell than not, and we say we can apply market knowledge to it in terms of price. We can say, what are your cap rates in this submarket? We know that. It's published. There's a lot of places that track it. We've bought buildings in those areas. We've sold buildings. We understand. 
we understand square footage, we understand age. We can then apply that same type of algorithm to cost or price, and we can predict within a fairly close range what the estimated prices for a building of that size, that year, that type, those rents, and that submarket. So what we have then is a list that we can look at at any time where we can see all the information about any specific building that tells us the likelihood of it selling in the next 24 months and the predicted sales price of what is likely to happen. Now, we don't even care if it's it's perfect. The key is it's better than not having it. And the more that we use it and the more that we tell the machine learning what happened, the smarter our list gets. And if you fast forward three years and we're doing this and someone else isn't, we will have a list of buildings that we know are going to sell and we know how much they're going to sell for. That's the key. You got to start somewhere. We started almost a year ago. If you fast forward through even two years, what happens with machine learning and algorithms is you, you can't even comprehend them as a human. They're way faster than we can ever comprehend. And if you fast forward a year, it's like 20 years of the past. Right. you'll get the knowledge very quickly. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things you said there, which we had struggled with in the past was, okay, even if we know there's 2,200 buildings in DFW that fit our criteria, we we kept asking ourselves, like, what does a successful acquisition guy's day look like? Mm -hmm. And it was like, if they make 100 calls a day, they had a great day. And we started realizing, it's like, that's all good, but if if you called on a hundred buildings that had no chance anyway, was it really a good day? Right. Like, should we look at it as like, no, we just want you to make five calls today, but make it these calls. Right. And when you're done, you go back to our system and put in the information that you learned off those calls. And it's not just things that we're scraping off the internet that are making it smarter. It's the things that we're learning from different calls, different interactions. It's coming in every which way. The only other thing I want to add to that is it might just be fun to talk about like, two or three of the data points that don't seem obvious to people. It's not like we're just looking at the easy things. Yeah. Like one of them is if the owner is out of state, Mm -hmm. that increases the likelihood that they might sell. If the owner's address is not a business address, but it is a residential address, that increases the likelihood they would sell. If they've owned it longer than five years, that increases the odds. So when we're talking about data, yeah, we're pulling the obvious things. Who are the tenants? When do they expire? You know, if a building's, you know, 100,000 feet and it's got a 50,000 foot tenant expiring in 12 months and we know that they haven't backfilled that lease and that the tenant is leaving, that's probably a likely, the sellers are doing something. They're either trying to get it leased, maybe they're trying to sell it. But I just thought it'd be fun to just say, like, when we talk about 700 data points, some of them seem obvious. Some of them... They're not. They're not. And it's things that we've picked up on over time. And again, looking at the stuff we have bought. So every time we do make an acquisition, Mm -hmm. even if it wasn't the one of those two buildings that said would sell, we can go back in, put that in, and the algorithm learns a little more. Maybe there was a data point we haven't weighted we as have, heavily. That's the key is that the 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 more we put in, the smarter the, the machine learning gets. But the crazy thing that, that we're learning is, is that these key data, data points, like you mentioned, the, the owner might live out of state and that might increase the odds. It does. We know that. But the, now the machine learning is telling us that. Yeah. Like we can predict those little things that we think, oh, I bet that's the case, right? Yeah. We have that idea. What happens now is it's combining all the data points and it is finding the patterns of why things sell and when. And 
it, of course, it's not ever going to be perfect because real estate and people making decisions are moving targets. But what it can do is it's tracking things like interest rates and cap rates and, and do owners live out of state or not, right? And it knows that over time, it sees those patterns that we cannot possibly see. Right. A human cannot see those patterns. And what, it's, what it does is as it gets smarter and you keep feeding more data into it and then it sees what is happening this year versus last year, the key there is that eventually it will start to predict at a very high rate. Yep. And if we don't do it, Somebody is. Right. And the, the truth is somebody else is doing it. We just don't know it. Right. Um, and we have to be able to play our game. So this is where the beauty comes in is that algorithms and machine learning are unbelievable tools. And a lot of people think, talk about AI. And if you listen to somebody like Elon Musk and they talk about at some point machines taking over the earth, <laughs> that, that stuff is, is all, I'm not worried about that stuff. What I am uh, interested in is that AI machine learning algorithms are only as smart as the questions that the person that is using it is able to ask. It's not going to start from nowhere. It has to start from some inputs that somebody is getting it because it's somebody is looking for a question to be answered, right? And so the more creative and the more unique the person is, we, Fort Capital, are at identifying the way that we find a property and use the algorithm or the machine learning the way that fits what we're doing gives us an advantage. No one can replicate that. No one can go match exactly what we're doing today. Yep. And the, the further out we get, they cannot catch up. Right. Uh, there's a tipping point, which once you've gone past that in terms of what your machine learning has accomplished, People can't catch up. Right. They physically can't catch up. But uh, what we're able to do is use our own sort of proprietary thought process is what we're doing and right. saying, this is how we look at industrial. This is the data points that matter to us. This is what we're trying to find. This is where. And all that stuff gives us an advantage. And time will tell, but but we feel strongly based on what we've seen today and and where we see it going is we'll have a huge advantage a year, two years, three years from now. And so just to synthesize what you just said is basically you could give two different companies the same set of data with the same machine learning tool. Mm -hmm. But if each group asks a different question, it starts off in a different direction. That's right. And nobody knows what questions we're asking except for us. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Same thing, talking about acquisitions still. Uh, we developed an acquisition consultant program mm -hmm. and we have a broker incentive program that's become more real as 2020 has gone on as another way that we're looking. Let's just chat just a little bit about what those are and why they're important. Yeah. I mean, we care a lot about the people that we partner with and obviously finding deals, all the great technologies and stuff that are out there are providing us a tremendous advantage and, and value. But at the end of the day, it still requires human communication and relationships and connections and those sort of things. So our partnerships with our uh, consultant partners and our brokers are extremely important to us. And we want to continue to build on that. We would love to have a huge network of people that trust in us and we trust in them and we're out finding these deals and they believe in the technology and the things we're doing. And so we've established two platforms, which are very similar. Some are uh, directed towards brokers that are in the market working on these deals day to day. That's their job. That's what they do. Um, and, and we incentivize them by giving a bonus and additional incentives that we can offer them. Um, if they bring us deals, we're looking for deals off market. Um, but what we're trying to do is, is let brokers know that if we go find deals 
we're going to treat them better than if they just go do a deal with somebody else. Right. That's our intent is we want to build long-term relationships with our broker partners and we want to provide value to them that is above and beyond where they can find another in another place. And and that's not just us trying to give away money. That is us showing them that if 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 they bet on us, we're going to bet on them. And we want that to turn into more and more. And on the uh, consultant side, we've established a consultant network that we uh, is really targeted for anybody that's interested in picking up the phone and calling on building owners and that is confident in building a relationship and tracking deals. Anybody can do that. I think that's the, 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 the different world that we're living in now is with technology, we don't need experts to go find specific real estate assets. The broker network is always going to be in tune with what's out there. But how do we touch base with those other 1,000 building owners that are just at, you know, in another state that aren't even paying attention to the broker network? And that's what we're also interested in is how do we take these lists of hundreds or thousands of buildings and we get them in the hands of people that are motivated and excited and that want an opportunity to go find real estate that maybe don't even understand it yet. Yep. And we want to we show them how to do it and we want to help them understand that there's, a there's an option out there to go make really good money and- you don't have to be an expert. Right. You, have you don't to, have to know how to model and underwrite and right. be crazy. If you can pick up the phone and be aggressive, yep. you could be selling life insurance. I, I'd prefer that person. You've been selling life insurance over the phone. We're about to give you a much easier job. Right. You're going to call and offer people money for their building. Right. Or any industry, and life insurance is a great example, of, but any industry, especially through COVID, there's a lot of industries where sales or or some form of that person that's really good at picking up the phone or building relationships or networking or biz dev, right? They're, they're out there. There's a whole world out here of uh, real estate, specifically in our world, industrial real estate, where you just need really good people to pick up the phone and call. And, and we will give them the tools, provide them the, the data that they need and help them understand this is what we're looking for when you talk to these people. All you have to do is get that contact uh, back to us and let us continue that negotiation. And they'll that person will continue to get smarter, but we'll be able to close more deals and they'll benefit greatly from it. And that, that we want both of those partnerships to be working at all times. Yeah, and I think the only thing I would add to the consult insiders, these are not people that have to come work at Fort Capital full-time. Right. These are subcontractor agreements that you sign with us. This could be a full-time job for you or part-time on the weekends when you're looking for extra money. Yep. But it is an agreement that you sign with us. We provide you information, where to call, who to call, and a very easy portal for how to submit information back to us. And we pay really well if you're successful. Right. Yep. Okay. We wanted to close $100 million this year. We ended up closing 80 uh, which, again, given 2020 uh, and the fact that for almost half the year, we were didn't know if we'd buy anything again. I'd say it was a successful year. Um, raised a little over, uh, I think it was like $22.5 million. Um, and as we gear into 2021, uh, our goal is basically to double that and do 150 million this year. Uh, we'll raise 50 to 60 million in 2021. Um, again, to us, 150 million is just an easy way to go. We think we can do 12 to 14 deals based on our deal size. It's 150. Could we do 200? Yes. If we only did 100, could we do that too? Great. If we're not going to go overpay for assets just to hit some number, but 150, given our deal sizes and our activity, we feel like is a very reasonable kind of stretch goal. Yep. I, don't know. I agree. 
We added over 122, uh, 120 investors this year. Again, we have taken the approach that our uh, kind of mission going forward as it relates to investors is we want to meet more of them and have lots of them. Uh, we have 160 active investors in deals right now. We have a database of over 300 of them. Um, and our goal in 2021 is to is to double that is 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 to is to continue. We, a great year would be to end with 600 investors in our uh, pipeline. We'll continue doing deals on a deal by deal basis, which gives investors the ability to send uh, to to give thumbs up or thumbs down. Everything will be syndicated. And you know, I'm really proud that in the four deals that we raised this year, in every equity raise, we raised in less than 48 hours. And mm-hmm. so our goal is to raise quicker, raise larger dollar amounts in a quicker period of time. Those are kind of the two metrics that really matter. And then most importantly, to do it with people uh, that we like, that we want to have BLPs that we get along with, that share similar kind of values to we what we do. And so um, on the investor front, it was just really kind of humbling in 2020 to see in a year where, you know, there was fear um, to some degree to invest. It's hard to say that now with looking at the stock market and Bitcoin and Tesla and everything else going on. But uh, we were able to almost double our total investors this year in a year when, um, honestly, if you'd asked me in March and April, it was like, I don't know if we'll meet a new investor for a long time, not because yeah. of us, just because of the world. So. Uh, if you are uh, somebody listening that is in, interested in uh, industrial exposure, we would love to hear from you and um, we would love to uh, add you as a limited partner. Okay, so kind of dovetailing off that acquisitions kind of conversation, I uh, would just have a, a shameless ask that if you know uh, of anybody in the state of Texas that owns a kind of Class B light industrial or light industrial flex property, in the five to fifty million dollar range in Fort Worth, Dallas, the whole DFW metroplex, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, and El Paso, uh, we would be more than grateful uh, to hear from you. That is exactly what we are trying to buy. Uh, we'll kind of end it on just some thoughts that we have looking into twenty twenty one that we'll be held accountable for on this episode next year. So, what are we thinking about for next year? Well, I think that it, like every year, we we focus the first of the year on on recognizing what we can accomplish in the next year. And this year we've become more focused, more aligned and, and, or more laser focused because of our OKRs and our flywheel. And, and the truth is this year, we're going to continue to get better at the things that we do. Uh, but at the end of the day, we know the number one thing that, that makes us great is when we buy great real estate. You say that all the time and operate it with excellence. And we're going to continue to do that. That's what's going to provide us the ability to give great returns to our investors and provide more opportunity to every person, partner in our world, including our employees. And so our focus for this year is to go find great real estate, use the skills and the technology and the things that we have and execute on on them at the highest level. Yep. And continue to hire amazing people and train the people that are already on our team to be even better. Absolutely. All right. This wraps up kind of our 2020 in review. Uh, stand by because we'll be here a year from now on 2021. Um, Thank you, everybody, for the continued support that you're showing the podcast and to Fort Capital. And if you want a little bit more on today's um, discussion, we just released our annual letter today. You can go to fortcapitallp.com, go to How We Think, and you can download our letter. I think Medium said it's a 13-minute read. You could listen to it on your phone at 2x speed and get it done in six and a half minutes. 
everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.